Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 2004, and if you're a podcast, I'm a podcast. The movie... The Notebook. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. This is a show where we unspool the greatest films to see if they are classics or... Or just... Remembered that way. I'm Amy Nicholson. I am a film critic who writes for the New York Times. And I am Paul Shear. I'm a Wheel of Fortune champion. Uh, <laughs> and I also uh, am open to a romance. Um, Amy, first time I've seen The Notebook. And I really want to talk about the production of this film because this is a movie that, on its surface, is incredibly simple. But yet the actors, the directors, the links that they went to was almost like prepping a giant, big-budget action film. The kind of movie that launches careers, launches Ryan Gosling into being the Ryan Gosling that we know now, launches Rachel McAdams, launches them both into being this ideal, beautiful couple of the mid-aughts. And it even uh, has a good showcase for that actress, Gina Rollins, that up-and-comer. I think she's going somewhere. And it's interesting because this is a movie that's unabashedly about love, but people love to bash it. I mean, critics are ripping this movie to shreds. It is not favorable on Rotten Tomatoes. And we're going to get into why. Are we just too cynical? We might be. And maybe that is more tragic for us than it is for anything that happens in this movie. Well, Amy, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And we're going to have to work at this podcast for the next hour or so. But I, I want to do that because I want to do it with you. I want to do it with you forever. You and me unspooling it every day. The year is 2004 and people have been trying to make The Notebook for eight years. The script based on Nicholas Sparks' first novel, a decade-spanning romance about a couple in the past and in the present, spent a full year on the bestseller chart. People are taking it seriously. The first director who wants to make it, well, 
It's the first director who wants to make everything Steven Spielberg. He sees Tom Cruise as the young romantic lead, but Steven gets too busy. So then Jim Sheridan, the director of My Left Foot, takes command. And then Martin Campbell, the director of GoldenEye and later Casino Royale. And somewhere in there, George Clooney gets cast as the young romantic lead. And Paul Newman gets cast as the older George Clooney. And again, the project is cock-blocked on its way to the altar. Finally! Nick Cassavetes, the director of the Denzel Washington hospital thriller John Q, gets it made, but he insists on doing it with relative unknowns. Instead of Tom Cruise or George Clooney, he says he wants an actor who is not handsome, not cool, just as he puts it, a regular guy who looks a little bit nuts, the kind of nuts you need to fall in love with one girl and then love her for the rest of his life. He gives the part of Noah to a Mickey Mouse Club turned burgeoning indie actor named Ryan Gosling. And the part of Noah Calhoun turns Ryan Gosling into a guy that everybody thinks is handsome and super cool. Now, if you're like, I need a guy who's not handsome and cool, and you're like, Ryan Gosling, everybody thinks you're insane. Um, Rachel McAdams wins the role of Allie in a landslide during her audition process. And James Garner and Gina Rollins round out the cast as older Noah and Allie. Gina, by the way, is Nick Cassavetes' mom. So the story classic romance about a young couple named Noah and Allie who fall in love over the summer in a small town in South Carolina. It's also about an older man reading the love story of Noah and Allie to a woman with dementia so she can remember that they actually are Noah and Allie. The story has laughing and fighting and breakups and seven-year gaps and new fiancés and lots and lots of birds. When older Allie does remember that this is her romantic story, it's beautiful And very, very sad. When the movie was released on June 25th, 2004, it did okay. But word of mouth kept it in theaters that entire summer. And when Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams reconnected after filming the movie, they fell in love. And when The Notebook won Best Kiss at the MTV Movie Awards and they kissed on stage, well, The Notebook officially became the romantic sensation of a generation. What song is on the charts that weekend of June 25th, 2004? A perfect one. It is about a man who thinks at the beginning of the song that things with his girl aren't going to work out. They're not getting along. But as time goes by, boy, does he miss her. And by the end of the song, he makes it clear that he is not going anywhere himself. He's not going anywhere for 511 days, umpteen hours. Yes, it is Usher and Burn. She ain't coming back. What I gotta do now? To get my shorty back. And I don't know what I'm gonna do without my boo. You've been gone for too long. It's been 511 days. I'm seeing novels. I'm gonna be burning to your return. Classic song and classic movie. But like I said last week, I missed this one. I never saw The Notebook. I understood that The Notebook was a sad romance. And I have to say, Amy, um, I really enjoyed The Notebook. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You went into it with an open heart? I did. You Look, I am a romantic. And just because I may have had some opinions about love, actually, which I still love, hate, um, I am always up for a romance. As a matter of fact, I was on Twitter last night. There's a slight detour. Um, and they were talking about different writers and where they started. And, you know, Tony Gilroy, who uh, was behind movies like Michael Clayton and now... Uh, this great series Andor, which I think you would love. Um, he wrote a romance that I love, The Cutting Edge. Did you ever see that? The hockey player and oh. uh, ice skater movie? 
Yeah. I think oh, I, I loved did it. see that. And when I was blown away, I was like, that was, that was like a romance. I, and I grew up with like these, you know, Cameron Crowe, Say Anything, Singles. Like that, that was my, coming up, I was very much in a romance kind of boom, I feel like. What about you? You know, I think I avoided romance a lot of the time when I was young. And I didn't even watch The Notebook when it came out because I thought, that's got to be corny, not for me. I wound up watching it maybe five years later at a friend's house on the couch, putting up that little bit of resistance like, oh, this movie's going to be too too corny. I can't handle it. And then quietly loving it. And then over the years, just becoming more bold with the fact that they do really love this movie. Once I broke up with like a, a kind of serious boyfriend and the way that I handled it was I went to my best friend's house for the weekend and I just watched The Notebook on repeat and let myself cry every single time, every single oh. time I watched this movie. And by the end of the weekend, I was pretty cried out and I felt ready to start the next phase of my life. I don't know if that's like the healthiest way to deal with a breakup, but I will put it out there as a way that does work. One of the things that I was very nervous about during the pandemic was I introduced my boyfriend to The Notebook. He had never seen it. And I was like really hoping that he was going to like this movie. And he did love the movie and he cried. And then when I had to rewatch The Notebook again for this podcast, he came into the room and at one point I looked over at him and he was sobbing and I was sobbing and it made me love my boyfriend even more than I thought I could. I love this man so much, but watching this man cry at The Notebook again, oh, and then having this man tell me, you can tell everybody that I cried on The Notebook again, he's, he gave me permission. That's you like, know, to me, that is like the biggest heart in the world. Oh, I'm not afraid to admit that I cry. I mean, now I cry at basically anything. But I will say that for a movie that feels almost like a parody of a romantic film, I mean, it hits every single beat that we are accustomed to. It still really works. And I was trying to like deconstruct that in my head. Is it just that we like a story like this? Like, why are we not jaded against this movie? You know, because it's not doing anything revolutionary. Is it just the the leads? Is it, is it the framing? I can't quite tell like what connects us here. I was kind of wondering that too. Like, is it all just the absolute amazing chemistry between Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling? Like the way they just look at each other, their faces seem to light up, even though they apparently like hated each other while they were making this movie. Oh yeah. Ryan Gosling tried to get Rachel McAdams fired within the first couple of weeks. I did not realize that they did not get along and you can't tell at all. When I saw all these pictures of them together after the film, I was like, oh, they fell in love while they were making it. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, they did not. Like when they fell in love after the fact, Nick Cassavetes was like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. They hate each other. What? Never. I mean, talk about romantic cliches that actually do wind up working. We hate each other. We hate each other. We hate each other. Oh, man, you're perfect for me. Well, I have to tell you, I don't know how Rachel McAdams did not fall in love with Ryan Gosling because I'm falling in love with Ryan Gosling. I, I watched this movie. And I was like, I get it. Now I already like Ryan Gosling, but I get why this movie made him a giant star. Like, I'm like, oh, I there's something about him in this movie. Every little affectation is just perfect. Now, I didn't realize that they shot the movie out of order. They started with the older Ryan Gosling stuff, the bearded back from war. And then over Christmas break, they took some time off. 
He lost some weight. He came back and did the younger stuff. And I actually thought that that really helped the movie in a way because he's so comfortable in that character that when he first comes on screen, literally the first time you see him, you're like, I'm all there. And when you first see him, he is fully developed as a character. I feel like you immediately connect to something that's going on behind his eyes. I don't know what it is. I'm, I am just with him on this journey. There's a twinkle, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's something happening in his face that feels so alive, like so real. You know what I think it is, is he doesn't feel like a bad boy. He doesn't feel like a good boy. He feels very normal. Like he's fun, funny, quirky. He's not too much of anything which makes him a little bit of a lot of things. And that allows him to do something like as insane as hanging onto the Ferris wheel. And you don't think of him as a bad boy. He, he does and is ultimately a, a nice, sweet guy. And I feel like I was always waiting for that other shoe to drop and it never drops. It just never drops. And the same thing with Rachel McAdams. Like she also is a caring, sweet person. She doesn't have as much, um, I think, real estate to show all of her sides. Whereas I feel like Ryan Gosling really uh, gets to show a little bit more of his personality. I think that she's a little bit more one-sided as a character. I, I agree. I was thinking that what makes this movie special is that those characters don't feel phony or put into boxes right you know that it isn't like he's the rebel and she's the good girl you know he's the poor bad boy and she's the snobby rich girl they aren't coming from an extreme position they're just coming from a place of like oh we really like each other oh we actually have really fun chemistry like when he makes her laugh her laugh is just super genuine (laughs) okay And also, it's like a goofy laugh and a dorky laugh, but it is just a real laugh. You know, she's not playing the part of like the ingenue who doesn't want to fall in love. It doesn't feel artificial. I just want to bring up one thing about Rachel McAdams. Tell me if I'm totally crazy, but when she was playing the youngest version of herself, like those first two scenes, she looked like Mia Goth to me in Pearl so much that I couldn't, like, I was like, I was, the way that her face was framed or something, I was really, like, taken by it. I was like, oh, my gosh. And then I started thinking about, like, who could Mia Goth be paired up with? Could you remake The Notebook? And could you remake it with Ty West? And then what would we have here? (laughs) And even for a character that is, like, quote, unquote, very rich, She's not even playing the very rich up. Like her character isn't defined by that. It seems like she is put in a box by her parents, but she herself isn't showing those sides or being put off by where he lives or what his family is like. Like when they do have that scene where they have late night pancakes, which is really, uh, you know, how can you not fall in love with a family making pancakes at 10 o'clock at night? I know. I love that. That's like kind of an insider, I feel like, into who the Noah Calhoun guy is. Like, if you grew up in the 40s with a dad who's like, why don't we have 10 o'clock pancakes? Like, of course, you're going to be a little bit of a weirdo. 
I mean, even the way that Ryan Gosling says pancakes when he gets older is weird. Like, he's a weird guy. Um, um, some pancakes. Okay. And some bacon. And it's moments like that. Like, he's not like, I'm the handsome lead. I want pancakes and bacon, my darling, and make them in your towel, and I love you. He's like talking in a goofy little kid voice and just being weird. And it doesn't have to become a runner. It doesn't have to be like a total joke. It's not overwritten. It's just a little moment of breathing room. And I think maybe what we're coming to in a way is the fact that this movie is an arch allows you to maybe connect to it a little bit more because even Rachel McAdams' dad, the guy with the perfect mustache, played by David Thornton, he doesn't seem to be like, my daughter will never be with a poor man. Like, he seems kind of intrigued by it. He's listening to Joan Allen, who is her mother, who is warning her, and we get to understand why she's warning him, not just because she's rich, it's because she's been down that path as well, which I thought was a really nice reveal. Yeah, she's like, you marry a poor hot guy, someday he's going to be... A poor, less hot guy. What are you going to do then? Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, I was thinking that uh, I know this movie was incredibly successful. The book was even more successful. They made a sequel to the book called The Wedding, which was about Noah and Allie, their child getting married and going through a similar situation. I was like, you know what? We should just went backwards and had Joan Allen and this guy would have liked to have seen that story, the the story that didn't work out. Because we knew the end. I thought that was like a great way to do it instead of just kind of manufacturing a future. But I guess people wanted more... Noah and Allie. Um, no, but I'm with you. Like, because when when their kids show up in the movie, I'm like, those kids don't look related to them. Those kids seem really boring. How did two people this interesting have those boring kids? And also, when they're like, oh, and your granddaughter Davini, they're like, what a pretty name, Davini. Um, apologies to anybody out there named Davini or with a child named Davini. Are there Davinis because of this movie? It just <laughs> oh, makes I me bet. think of Renesmi. Anything with too many e's at the end, I think I get nervous. <laughs> I think we need to stop naming our children after fictional characters. I I don't know. I have a whole issue on that. Uh, it just feels like it's always going to be maybe problematic years later when you have to describe like, oh yes, I was named after a character in, uh, in a show that was on HBO. Yes, it was a book, but my parents actually didn't read the books. They just watched a show. And uh, <laughs> I think I know where you're going with this. <laughs> but um <laughs> But no, this this movie, I think the most shocking thing to me was 
you know, what happened to Ryan Gosling? Like what happened to his face as he got older? Because when they look back at that like photo album of their love, he turns into James Garner pretty quickly. <laughs> like James Garner is young in those pictures and that little uh, photo album that he's going through at the end. I was like, wow, they don't even try to bridge the gap. They're like, it's straight up James Garner. Like, like as if yeah. we haven't just watched this entire film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're like, congratulations, your cheekbones just doubled in broad. <laughs> broth, broad. I don't know how you say broader, broader, broth. I was like wit, but broth. <laughs> now, by the your way, your cheekbones are twice as broad. Your jawline is completely different. You are James Garner. And one of my favorite kind of stories about like the making of this movie is, you know, Ryan Gosling was like, got to be taken seriously, got to be taken seriously, got to talk to James Garner, got to figure out how we're going to tie our characters together. And he meets with James Garner and he's like, okay, let's coordinate. What accent are we going to do? And James Garner's like, I don't do accents, kid. They're stupid. And Ryan Gosling's like, okay, okay, what about hair? And he's like, you just do whatever you want, kid. And then Ryan's like, okay, 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 what about eye color? I've got blue eyes. You've got brown eyes. And James Garner goes, everyone knows Jim Garner's got brown eyes. Do what you want, kid. And that's basically it. No other coordination. I will say I am very surprised at the lengths that Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams went through to do these parts like did you hear this ryan gosling went full method like he went down <laughs> to south carolina was rowing every morning built a table that was used in the film rachel mcadams like lived in charleston took piano lessons and hung got out with the... debutantes took etiquette classes it really feels like wow a lot of detail was put into this film which I don't even know if you need it. I don't know if you do, but maybe you did because it feel. I don't even know if it needs to feel that real. I don't know. I seeing that I was just su- surprised, and maybe it's more to the point of two actors who are coming into their careers knowing that they have these huge roles in front of them, and they want to do everything that they can. Well, yeah, and I feel like the ones that we do see are all done by Nicholas Sparks, like. Mm-hmm. Because I watched most of the Nicholas Sparks romance movies that got made after this. Because after this, of course, they made like nine million more. And they're all interesting in that it's sort of like, okay, like, you know, at the Golden Globes, they used to like have children of famous people come out. And it was like your debutante kind of parade. Like, congratulations, you're the next like nepotism kid in Hollywood. That's kind of how I feel that they like cast most Nicholas Sparks movies. It's like you can really see who they think the next wave of talented kids are based on who's in a Nicholas Sparks movie. You know, there's like Channing Tatum and Amanda Seyfried. Zac Efron did a a Nicholas Sparks movie. Like I think Hemsworth is have done them. A Liam. Yeah. Liam and and Miley Cyrus did a Hemsworth, did a, did a Nicholas Sparks movie and they fell in love making it. Just to kind of put it in people's heads, Nicholas Sparks movies are, Movies like Safe Haven, Last Song, Dear John, uh, The Longest the Best Ride. Of me, that the was like the ride. one with Clint Eastwood's son. Yes. Uh, Nights at Rodanth, which is more of an adult one, A Walk to Remember, Message in a Bottle. Uh, you know, these are these films, these posters that you see, and you're right. I don't think there are many other just straight up romance films. Not to say this is without humor, but it's the. It's sweet. It's sweet at its core. And I think maybe even part of that 
is really fun to watch. Just something completely committed to being lovely. Yeah, it's like not embarrassed to be a romance. It's like, right. hey, wouldn't it be romantic if we had 3,000 geese right here? Maybe it's a little over the top, but let's have 3,000 geese right here because why not? And by the way, when I was watching this movie the, this last time, I was like, how did they get all of that geese? And I was watching the credits kind of looking for the, the, goose the digital wrangler? person who made all the geese, basically, or like pretending that different words were like code for geese wrangler. And then finally, at the end of the credits, they actually had a full on waterfowl unit that was pretty big, like a, a <laughs> coordinator and an assistant coordinator. There was, was a, a game of- boss, two handlers of the waterfowls. <laughs> and what I finally learned is that New Line told Nick Nick Cassavetes that having all of these birds was going to be crazy, that he couldn't do it. And he was like, no, I'm going to do it. I need to have all of these geese. So he bought these hatchlings and then he raised them as chicks in this pond. Not Cassavetes himself. I'm sure he had somebody else do it. One of these five guys from the waterfall unit. But they raised all of these geese in this lake so that they would then get acclimated to the lake and then he could shoot with as many geese as he My wanted. My God, the, the amount of work they did here. I'm... I'm kind of in awe of it because it feels like these are the movies that don't get that amount of time to do all that prep work. These are the movies that feel like, hey, it's just about the chemistry between these two characters. But they're treating this film like you'd be treating a big budget action or sci-fi film, raising animals, building tables. It feels big to me. Yeah, like this is the kind of exact movie that isn't getting made right now that I mourn the loss of. It's like a roughly $30 million studio movie that's not a sci-fi tentpole franchise kind of thing. It's like made quality as as a one-off, basically. And it's the kind of movie that like is so pivotal to me. You know, you put this much energy in a movie, then you cast these two unknowns and you create movie stars out of putting effort into a film like this. You know, like, you invest in the future of Hollywood when you make a movie like this. And they're not doing that. You know, they're not doing that with like the marketing muscle. They're not doing it with the budget. They're not doing this at all. They're not doing it with, with new actors and they're not taking risks on stuff like that. Like there's a lack of this kind of ambition right now that I miss so much because yeah, it's, it's been nice to see that Netflix is bringing back the romance movie, but they're bringing back, you know, kind of like very young teeny rom-coms and they're not, I think yet having Which the chance to make shitty, this right? huge impact. They're fun. They're getting all these watches, right? You know, it's the number one most watched film. And I will go and I will watch these movies. But oftentimes they're scripted like shit. They look terrible. Um, And it really is the leads who are carrying a lot of the weight. It's like, oh, I like that person. I like that. That here. Um, And here I felt good. But the parts are always like really artificial. It's like fakey. Yeah, it's so fakey. It's so fakey. And it's like, it makes me wonder how much of this is just like a movie being made in like a, a time that feels very ancient to me now, like 2004, where this movie was shot on like 35 millimeter and looks so handsome. And and this was just how movies were made. And we like lost that uh, pretty much, I think, immediately after this, like in, the, in five years after The Notebook was made, Hollywood just feels totally different to me. Or is it just that like Nick Cassavetes is able to get stuff done in the bro-y way that he gets stuff done on Entourage. Do you remember when he was on Entourage playing a director? Stunt, man. You, driving that car, I want the audience to look at you and go, God damn, that motherfucker is a badass. 
Because if they don't, because if it looks fake, the movie's gonna suck, Vince, and you're gonna wind up coming off like uh, like a pussy, like a pussy. You don't want to look like a pussy, do you? So maybe he like totally broke out, and he was like, "Yo, Gosling is like named for baby geese, and if I don't get my baby geese on this set, heads are gonna roll, man." Or, is <laughs> First that of it? all, I love <laughs> love that impression. Please, Thank more you. of that. I definitely think that Nick Cassavetes brings an energy to this movie. And I think that that is apparent in all the male characters. I think there's often this term thrown around of like, oh, that's like a chick movie. And I'm sure people have said that about The Notebook. But his energy, what he's added to it, I'm sure, made it a little bit more well-rounded. Something where I think I was surprised to see all the flavors of the male character's as well as the female characters. Everybody felt really well-rounded. I think that that is kind of a thing uh, the the Cassavetes family is known for, you know, is kind of creating this these deeper, richer characters. Um, but I'd also say, I wonder if part of this movie and why it works is because it's simple. It makes me think, like, there might just be room for an entertaining down the middle story. It definitely works in TV with like Law and Order and CSI and all that sort of stuff. People want to tune in and enjoy a simple story. And I think, you know, I love Blue Valentine. I think it's great. I think it's a great, beautiful romance film, also with Ryan Gosling. I think that there is a world where both of these things can be true. We don't need to make everything feel edgy or even more complex. Sometimes we just want a simple story. I feel like we we are missing out on that just in film. Well, okay, two things. One, I feel like we should do a John Cassavetes movie down the line, actually, from his dad. Yeah. Because his dad is one of the signature American filmmakers who's kind of surprisingly not on the AFI list, so we didn't get to cover him first season. Uh, he feels major. Um, we should probably do one of the ones he did with Gina Rollins, maybe just uh, to tie it all together to see to see this wonderful actress directed by her husband and her son. Uh, but also to that point, yeah, like I I absolutely feel like I can see the overplottingness that you're describing. Why does he do this? Why does that happen? What's happening here? What's their darkness? What's their dark twist? And what this movie does that I admire is it lets the plot points just come from somebody's emotions even in the moment. Like I'm thinking about something where where when they break up for the first time, right? In the in the child timeline when they're like 17 and 19. Right. They get into this fight because like he overhears her parents saying that he's trash. And so they're both, I think, very believably in their kind of like instant teenage mindset where he's scared and trying not to get hurt and pulling away and she's ready to like fight for them. But when she sees that he's pulling away, she gets mad and she pulls back and they have this fight that is like emotional whiplash. You know, like all of the plot beats are happening in the fight. You know what? I'm going to do it. It's over. Okay, it's over. Don't touch me. I hate you. I hate you. Why don't you just go? Yeah. Like the overplotted version of that is 
you know, it's a misunderstanding. She doesn't understand. And then like she breaks up with him and she cries. And then she sees something about him that reminds her of it later. And it changes her mind like, where, where, where things have to happen in the plot to change a character's mind. You know, where characters just sort of make up their mind about how they feel and they continue literally until they hit another plot point and then they change a direction again. And this thing happens and they change direction that way. This is about how people just contain a lot of emotions inside of themselves. One takes over and then 10 seconds later, another emotion takes over. And that feels so much more real to me than like this happens. And now you're kicked into this direction. No, I totally understand what you're saying because there are no real villains in this movie. Like James Marsden could be a villain. He could be a dick. He could be cocky. He could want to fight him back. But like, yeah, he's not Cal and Titanic. Right. And I really appreciated that. Because it seems like the movie knows what you want from it, which is you want Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams to stone cold bone and stay together forever. And it's on the fucking poster. You know, they're going to, you know, it's not, we just want to go on that journey. We want to just follow that. And by the way, 51st Dates has a similar plot point. You know, Adam Sandler has to uh, keep on falling in love every day with the woman who has amnesia. And I was thinking about that because they both came out in 2004. And I wonder if Adam Sandler was just really smart about it as this movie was like, you know, existing in this development hell of every director circling it. He's like, oh, I'll just make the funny version of The Notebook and I'll just do the James Garner, Gina Rollins part and make that the entire movie. But I'll do it as the Ryan Gosling, Rachel McAdams part. (laughs) I mean... I like that. I like that fantasy lid of of Adam Sandler being on top of all the romantic scripts. But actually, Adam Sandler did make really good romantic movies. He did. He really the Wedding did. Singer really is great. Yeah. He, he's done a great job of also making these movies where it's a date. I call it like a date movie, a term I came up with. Uh, but no, it really is like a movie where you could you know, both people can come to this movie and enjoy it. And I think that that's what Adam Sandler did in spades. That's why I think women love Adam Sandler. I think guys love Adam Sandler because it had enough of the goofy stuff in it that you love, but it also had a heart to it. I mean, I I would really like someone to help us do a deep dive on 51st Dates and see if they saw how well The Notebook was doing on the bestseller charts and they just quickly churned it out because that, a moment or the, the bookends of this movie, the James Garner, Gina Rowland's bookends. Was that supposed to be like an M night twist? Like, Oh, it's not a story. It's them. I mean, they kind of blow it in the middle. It's not, you know, fully realized, you know, like at the very last act, like it was them all along. But was that a shocking moment for people or was it not even supposed to really be that much? You know, I genuinely don't know, to be honest, because it's one of those twists that's always been spoiled for me. And I don't know how it worked out in the moment. Like, it's it it's kind of strange. Like, I guess, like, the argument is he starts calling himself Duke in the future so it doesn't scare her. Like, so much right. of it is about keeping, you know, older Allie calm so she doesn't feel so disoriented, uh, like, extra disoriented. But what I think is really interesting about it is, so he's reading this book, right? And this book has been written down and it is basically a book of memories of their life and he is reading it. So, you know, most of the movie, you feel like this is him telling her his story as he remembers it. That's how it even is in their book. Like he wrote down their memories and he's reading his memories to her. 
But what you see in a glimpse in this movie in one shot is that it, she wrote down the book in the movie. Like she wrote down these memories. And so he's reading her back her own memories that she wrote down. I'm saying this just because we've had a couple of movies now that we've watched where there's been this question at the center of it. Whose memory is it? And does it matter whose memory is it? Does it matter who is telling the story? You know, is it Luke's memory of Kylo Ren when Kylo Ren destroyed the Jedi school? Or is it Kylo Ren's memory of it? Is it Dom Cobb's version of Mal? Or is it who Mal is? <laughs> and I'm wondering, does it matter at all to the story that he is reading her memory? Like well, maybe she's a nicer person than he is, which is why everybody in the story is really, really nice. Maybe when she's like imagining what his life was like without her, she's like, yeah, he didn't even wash his shirts. All his shirts were so dirty. He must have been extra schlubby when I wasn't around. No, you see, I thought of it differently. Um, first of all, I thought the reveal was going to be it was an empty book, but it wasn't. Um, I have a feeling that when she was diagnosed, she was worried that she would forget their love. And this is a project that they did together. And they basically spoke about their relationship so they could give both sides because we get to see a little bit of Allie's side and we get to see a little bit of Noah's side. So I feel like this was a collaborative effort of them to write down their history because she gives him the the assignment, like, please bring me back with this. I'm, I'm fading. Like, it feels like that inscription was written knowing it was fading away. I mean, I think that's true, but you're right. Like, did they write it together or did she write it quietly and hand it to him? I would say like, well, I would say this, like one thing about this couple that I find really interesting Mm -hmm. is that they don't seem to lie to each other almost about anything. She doesn't tell him that she's going to Sarah Lawrence for college, but she's about to. She is, I believe her when she says she's about to go to, to, about to tell him that she's going to New York. But other than that, they kind of seem to tell each other everything right away, which I find very striking for a romantic movie because I think most romantic comedies are like based on a misunderstanding, the thing you didn't tell them, blah, blah, blah. Here, like when they reconnect when they're older, she basically tells him right away, I'm engaged to this other guy. And he basically tells her, I've been having sex with this woman named Martha because the very next day, Martha shows up and she knows all about Martha. Like they filled each other in on everything. She, when she tells James Marsden, she's going to get back together with Ryan Gosling. She tells James Marsden everything. Like the honesty that happens in this movie, I find really romantic. They're just like blurting it out. Here's what's going on. Without being cruel, which is interesting too. Cause I think that a lot of the times when you think about honesty, you aren't honest because you want to protect somebody. You want to be gentle with them. And they have a way of being very honest and gentle. Like, again, like hearing James Marsden react to her, basically going back to her love. And, you know, it, it, it does, it does feel like after she explains it to him, like he loves her enough to go like, Oh, I'll never be this. So please go and please like, I hate it, but do this. And his dignity in that moment, like, I don't want to have to convince my wife to marry me. And conversely, Ryan Gosling's, you know, girl feels like I know I never had him so I can continue having this fine relationship, but I'm okay with also letting it go. Like, 
I wonder if it's that that thing of knowing that there's always something missing in your partner, but you don't know what it is. And maybe there's a relief to seeing like, oh, that that's what it is. I And now I see it. So I have to, I have to give you this thing. I mean, not that, that everybody has that. I'm just saying, but that's what I feel like there's a part of what's going on here. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I find the Martha storyline, which is so little. We get, what, two scenes with Martha, basically? Yeah. I find it so touching. Because it's like, we know that she's a widow. We can probably infer that her husband died in the war. She's young. She's trying to be kind. He is drained of kindness. Like, to see to see Noah Calhoun treat another woman with, I think, kind of cruelly, you know, because right. he doesn't have it in him, it hurts. Like, it hurts to see Noah be that cruel to another person. And Martha just seems fine. She seems very sweet. She's pretty. She would be nice to him. He's not doing it. When she shows up at their house after they've had like the pancakes and bacon, the first instinct that you have in your heart is like, poor Martha. Oh, God. Oh, no. What's going to happen? And that it seems through the cut that they spend the entire day hanging out, that she really is like welcomed in by Allie, that Allie like kind of embraces this moment and they have this nice day. And then for Martha to say at the end, being around your love makes me remember what love is, in, in essence. You know, being around their love is inspirational to her. She's sensational. She really is. I'm really glad that I came, Noah. I've forgotten what it's like. For the first time since I lost Richard... I feel like I've got something to look forward to. That is the most beautiful possible spin I feel like you could put on this situation. You know, that it's, that nobody is a villain here. Everybody can grow from this. Even the moment where, like, Martha kisses Ryan Gosling goodbye. And, you know, Allie is, like, watching from the window, watching this guy who was sleeping with this woman a couple days ago get kissed by her in the front yard when she has just slept with this woman. And it's, like, the love of her life the confidence in their own relationship to be like, that's fine. He's just saying goodbye to Martha. It feels like such a strength position of our love is so real that you can kiss your ex-girlfriend and everything's fine. Like that is a weird kind of romance. I don't think you see in movies. I usually be like, he kissed her. Oh no, no, I'm mad and I'm leaving again. Right. Well, that's where we go. 
And again, just going back to that point we made earlier, which is these are all the complications that we add to romance films that we know are going to get cleaned up, right? It is the best friend who's secretly in love with the person, but that person doesn't know. It's the jealous ex or it's the, you know, like all these obstacles are muted and it's still incredibly fulfilling. And I wonder what that says about us and stories because we've built this whole cottage industry on this is what, and again, a rom-com hits. These are the beats. We need this person. We need that person. We need, and, and all these things have to kind of come in and create all this conflict and we're going to get over them. And the audience in a weird way, I think, gets bored of that because like, okay, that's going to go away. Mm-hmm. That will go away. Yeah. And then we'll finally get, because we know when what the end is. When you flag a problem is. with that artificiality, you know it's not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know it doesn't matter. You never think it's going to matter. And you get this, I guess, <laughs> you know, it, it really is like, we're saying like, oh, it doesn't have a comedy. It does, it's not super dark. I mean, the movie is dark. That That turn it takes when Gina Rowland's breaks well there's a few dark moments in that older version of them but when she does have that moment of being afraid that scene plays out very long and is incredibly uncomfortable but that to your point is a real moment that's not like a a contrivance it's not like oh he's going to read her this book and she's going to be better people tell you know James Gardner like stop don't worry about it it's not going to happen it's not going to happen and and his persistence allows him glimpses you know for moments seconds minutes um but the movie right, isn't like a miracle up on the fact that she's like playing his piano song again from like yes. the night they almost boned but didn't like that it's kind of dredged out of her memory and i think what i like about that is it's not magical at the end she doesn't get better but it also it has some consequences too like he doesn't give up on her you know, he's just trying to even get those little moments, those little moments. And it's like that, that crushed me, that scene where she does, you know, come back for a minute. Um, and I've talked yeah. to so many friends who've gone through similar things with their parents. And so I, that's a real, that's a real thing. I want to actually play it, I think, in yeah. the kind of stages you're describing. Because it is two stages, right? Like this mm-hmm. scene is the hopeful moment where she comes out of it. And she's like, she remembers that they are Noah and Allie. It was us. It was us. Oh, it was darling. Us. Oh, my sweetheart. Oh. I love you so much. Oh, baby. And that is the moment that it that makes me cry, right? Is the joy. Yes. The joy is like, oh, it gets me. Like, oh, oh, oh. And then this, she's building and she's being Allie in the moment. And then she does something that I find very Allie, which is... The Ali character has been kind of like, I would say, like impulsive, fun, emotional, kind of pivoting on dimes, getting really excitable. Like, I'm a bird, I'm a bird, I'm a bird, I'm a bird. And so older Ali, that part of her kind of emerges and she's like, let's go out, let's do something, let's have fun. And it's in that frenzy of pleasure and joy and anticipation that then her breakdown emerges again. You know what we could do? Maybe we could get a car, we could go for a ride. We could get out of here and just go someplace. You want to? I don't think so. 
Not tonight, darling. Come on, why not? Wait a Why did you call me, darling? I don't know you. What's going on here? Am I supposed to know you? Allie. No. No! No! Ali, sweetheart. Hey, Ali, I love you. Stay with me. Don't. No! I'm... Who are you? I'm Noah. I'm Noah, and you're Ali. What do you want? What are you doing here? Come on, baby. Don't come near me. Don't you come Allie. near me. Allie. Allie. Help! Help! Help me! Calm down, Ali. Calm down. No! Calm down, Ali. No! No! And I had to cut that scene off because, like, it then turns into 90 seconds of everybody just crying and screaming. And what is so painful is you're looking at James Garner's face and he is crying because he has caused her distress. You know, he's yes. not crying selfishly. He's crying because he has hurt her. And that, oh, it gets me. Well, that moment really is the only moment where we see him hurting her, right? We and we understand like she cried herself to bed for months after they had that breakup while he was writing letters to her every day. Like, but it's the first time that he directly has hurt her, but it was, is it selfish? And I guess that's maybe part of the movie too, is like, is it selfish for him to do this, you know, to cut himself off from his rest of his family, which we see like he's moved into this nursing home, but he can't stay away. And maybe that's what this theme is, is like true love. I think we're pretty jaded as a society because people are like, it's unrealistic love. It's this, it's that, it's this. Oh yeah, I found like an article that was like, 11 lies the notebook told you about love. And it just depressed me for the state of humanity. They're like, kissing in the rain is super uncomfortable. Your makeup gets smudged. Like, and if some guy kept texting you the way that he writes Allie, it'd be creepy and weird. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but so what? Like, maybe not. Who knows? Maybe it's case by case basis. By the way, also, let's go back to when this movie was being made, like in the 40s, you know, or when these characters were alive. And it's a different thing. Uh, it's a different it's not, thing. Yeah. It, it's not like stalking your Instagram page. Um, but I do think there's something here about like, his love has made him selfish. Like he will do anything he wants. Like the reason why he puts that house up, he builds that house and puts it up is because he knows that I think that they'll eventually come looking for it. Right. Like there's some, like, or that's at least the way I read it. Like I'm building this house. I'm going to get a lot of attention for it. Cause it's going to be a beautiful house that someone's going to want to buy. And hopefully she'll come to want to buy this house. Like, and then I'll, then my, not my trap will be set, but there is something self-serving about some of the actions he takes. And obviously he is a gentleman. And when it comes to her, he's not taking no for an answer. He's going to build their dream house, even though she's not there. And that's why I can't have that good relationship with Martha. Like, because he knows in the back of his mind, when he gets that opportunity, he is going to strike and strike and strike until he gets it. And there's something really interesting about that, like uncompromising about love and, and everything, but it also, I think, while that's so romantic, I think what they do is they, I think they really nicely show the downside of that too, because he causes her great stress. And it feels like the way that people have treated him here in the hospital, it may have happened a couple times, you know? Yeah. Um, 
because that stress gives him a heart attack. Yeah. But he's had two heart attacks before that. Is that also from days like this that went wrong? And he's got that greatest generational mindset where he's like telling his young doc, I don't care about my two heart attacks. I'm fit as a fiddle. You know, he's very right. suppressive about like his own physical health because he's just like, this is what matters to me. And I feel like that's one of the things that I like kind of try to struggle to cling on to, which is like, this isn't a story about how all romance is and should be. You know, this is a story about this guy who is really passionate and driven in a way that's so rare that makes him worth telling a story about. You know, this isn't like a template. Like if your love doesn't look like this, it's wrong. It's like, this is a very specific guy. I am no one special, just a common man with common thoughts. I've led a common life. There are no monuments dedicated to me and my name will soon be forgotten. But in one respect, I've succeeded as gloriously as anyone who ever lived. Looking good, dude. Feeling good. I've loved another with all my heart and soul. And for me, that has always been enough. How's it hanging, Harry? I keep trying to die, but they won't let me. Well, you can't have everything. But he's, yeah, he's he's not a common man because he has this really unique love story that's worth talking about. I, I guess I'm just trying to draw this point because, yeah, it's weird to me that, like, some of the reactions to this are like he's unhealthy and this is damaging. It's like, well, yeah, it, it don't you don't have to do this, but it's like romantic. I'm trying to draw this line because I think there's something in a romantic movie where, because you know, many of us will taste have tasted love in our life, right? Uh, where we almost act like it's a it's a blueprint or something where we're looking in here for like the commonality and like we take what these characters do. It blur the line between like depiction and endorsement. I, I don't know, you know, because like I'm not going to watch a movie where The Rock is like shooting 3,000 people and be like, well, I would have shot those 3,000 people a little differently. But romantic well, movies, we take their choices really almost like they're dangerous if we don't agree with them. I just don't often think that we see our two main characters in a romantic film cause each other pain besides a breakup, right? That's what we're used to seeing. But here we're seeing that he is truly hurting her is making her and himself worse for trying to make it better. And, you know, she's not trapped. She's not like, oh my gosh, thank you for getting me out. And then the door closes again. She doesn't really know from here or there. And I think that what, what that scene does or why that scene feels so unique is not only because it's truthful, but it also... I think illuminates a darker side of love. Like, you know, he's cutting himself off and for what end? And and I think we see some real, a real darkness there. It's not, it's the darkest moment of the movie, not just because she's suffering trauma, but because of how it affects both of them. It's true. And I think there's also just this element of sadness watching these two people that we've seen be like so young and full of life in this hospital environment. Like, they lived this full, passionate life. Like, both of them in their own ways are disobedient, you know, rule breakers. You know, they they are full of energy and vitality. And then to see them in this place where they're not getting to set the rules, where, like, younger people are telling these characters what to do is kind of weird to watch for me. It feels, like, suffocating a little bit. And, like, 
this couple that used to drink beer and like bone on the floor is now toasting each other with grape juice and they're having baby carrots for dinner. And part of me gets really sad about that too. That like, that like, oh man, we're all going to get older and we're not going to be able to like embrace the romance that we even have today. Like it makes, it makes the, it makes current romance feel more precious seeing that it'll be harder and harder to live free the way that they do flapping their wings and running in the surf. Like they're never going to get to flap their wings and run in the surf again. Their doctors aren't going to let them all these young doctors. And at least the doctors too, aren't played like super evil. Like I feel like the young doctor almost gets close to being a little luxury, but he's not wrong. He's not wrong. That like this process of reading this romantic story is giving James Garner heart attacks and it's making them have to sedate Gina Rollins. And is it worth it? And it hurts like, cause there isn't a good answer. So I guess my question is, do you think that he killed her at the end? Oh, I want to just think they flew away like little birds. I think he slipped something into that apple juice. No, I mean, it is. <laughs> um, I know that he did not kill her. I don't want anyone to get all freaked out about it. But there, there is something about that. Like, oh, yes, they, they both went off together. Very romantic. But I also thought there could be something very romantic about him being like, you know what? She's not getting anything out of life. I'm not getting anything out of life. I'm going to slip something in here. Well, look how sad her life looks like when he's gone and he's recovering from his heart attack and she's just alone and they film her behind all the the bars and she's just in the cage of like the wheelchair and it's so cold and it's so blue. Like I was turning to my boyfriend. We're still kind of wet from crying. And I was like, when we get old, can we just like set ourselves on fire on a pyre? I don't want to go through this part. This looks so awful. I know. I think that that like that is as anyone who has seen, you know, uh, uh, an older widow and, and the way that they go through life. It's like uh, there is something about it that is tragic and and you want that relief of let them both go together. They just want they want to be there and. And I do love that the nurses, you know, I mean, obviously the nurse doesn't know that he's going there to kill her. Uh, that's my new, I'm going to make a bunch of videos about this. My whole TikTok <laughs> will be like, James Garner murdered his wife. Um, you know, it's hard. It's so hard, I think, to to see it. I, I'll tell you very quickly a story. My, my grandparents were very uh, much in love and a very sweet couple. And... Um, my grandmother was incredibly healthy. My grandfather did have um, this Alzheimer's dementia uh, that he was going through. And my grandma fell down in uh, in the garage, just tripped and had surgery. They rushed her out of surgery very quickly. Um, and she she died in the, the ICU uh, after a successful surgery. And my grandfather, who had been in one of these homes, um, they went and the, they told him like, Hey, you know, uh, you know, Ella has passed and, and my, and my grandfather like got lucid for one second. It was like, Oh, okay. Like took it in, was sad and then died like two days later. Oh. And I, and I think about that all the time. Like he was, there was something about it where I was like, he was staying alive or staying there for her and you know so she would have somebody to visit and and be there with and then when he understood that she had passed away he was like okay done i I always think about that like that idea of like there is this 
sometimes a connection and, and sometimes it's a much shorter connection, but sometimes with older couples, like there is a little, not magic, but there's a little, uh, mind body connection. I've seen it, have seen it happen a couple of times like that. I'm not saying it's like that happens all the time, but I think that there's enough stories like that where couples hold on for each other and then kind of go closely to each other as they get I older. Mean- Maybe that's part of the pull of this movie is so many romantic movies just end when they finally get together Mm. and it's like dot, dot, dot happily ever after. And this is like, it will be happy for a very, very long time, but to love it all means pain. Like, you know, it doesn't just think like love solves everything. Love leads to more pain. Like there's the dark side of love, kind of like what you were talking about. I mean, I guess even to that, even in real life, when like Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams fall in love uh after they like make this movie uh it, they have of course their best kiss it's hard to play a kiss but i'll play a little bit of their speech for winning best kiss get up here oh, Look. <laughs> it was my pleasure <laughs> i will just say i've never had an award segment burned into my brain like this one this is i just i feel like i could i could I could illustrate this in stop motion animation, this best kiss win. It's, I don't know. It's a little unhealthy, but like Ryan Gosling was saying after they broke up in real life, that people were just so mad at him. Like people would come up to him on the street. Women would come up to him on the street. He said a girl came up to him and almost hit him. And she was just like, how could you, how could you let a girl like that go? And he was like, Rachel and I should be getting consoled. Rachel and I should be getting hugs, but we're consoling everybody else because our relationship meant so much to people. I mean, that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And one of Gosling's quotes on their romance when they were still together was he was like, people do Rachel and me a disservice by assuming we are anything like the people in the movie. Rachel and my love story is a hell of a lot more romantic than that. I love that. Oh, and by the way, I went on a deep dive prepping for this episode about how Ryan Gosling got famous in the first place. Mm-hmm. Do you know about his pre-Mickey Mouse career? I believe I heard about it a while ago, but tell me some more details about it. Okay. How Ryan Gosling got into being a performer is just super weird. So picture this. He's like a kid in Canada. He's seven years old. There's a talent show happening. A girl that he has a crush on is in the talent show, and she's going to be, I think, singing or lip syncing Uptown Girl. So he's like... I'll be your backup dancer. And he uh, gets on stage with his girl that he has a giant crush on being seven years old. And he doesn't know how to dance. So he just starts like humping the stage. He starts going into the audience and like grinding on women in the audience because he doesn't know what he's doing. And he's just humping and grinding everything, being like basically a seven-year-old Pepe Le Pew. And everybody thinks it's hilarious. So they won the talent show. And then he was put on the cover of of a newspaper for winning this talent show. And then that got enough attention that he was put on the Canadian version of Star Search. And he didn't know what to do because he doesn't actually have a talent. And his parents were like, you cannot do that dance. You cannot hump people on stage. So he learned like this whole dance routine. But then when he got on television, he just did the humping dance again and just started humping everything. And he won that. He like won the, the, the Star Search thing. And then he just got this like tiny minor Canadian career of like doing dance exhibitions and humping everything. Like you can find some of the videos on stage where he's doing mild humping, but I feel like the full on humping he really did is like much more humpy. But I'm going to play just a little audio clip. I want you to picture Ryan Gosling, 12 years old, before he's on Mickey Mouse, he's wearing kind of shiny hammer pants. He's on stage with like seven other girls who are in leotards. He's smirking. 
This is him doing a little bit of a of a pelvic thrust and the crowd just going nuts. Okay, Amy, that was something I did not know. I when I said I thought I knew a little bit about his career, did not know about that at all. It's so um, funny. Like he would say that he never had another talent, right? So like he gets on the Mickey Mouse show by doing the humping dance. And they're like, this is really funny. This kid has just all this moxie. But then when he's on Disney, they're like, well, we can't have this kid humping people on Disney. You know, so it's like a big deal that he's there because they don't have another Canadian. For some reason, him being a Canadian was like a huge deal for the Mickey Mouse Club. Like he's on local news in Canada and he is so confident at like 13 at this moment giving news interviews. It's really astounding. Blue Eyes has charmed them again. Well, actually, he's only 12, but this is Ryan Gosling. He's been performing for a long time, certainly has wanted to perform for a long time. And he has now landed a really big role, beating out some 15,000 other young talents to become Canada's only official Mouseketeer, which means that he's going to Florida to tape some shows, but right now he is in Ottawa. They think this is really cool, and they're, like, really excited. They call me Mouse Boy and things. They're all happy for me. <laughs> they're not teasing you endlessly? No. No, they're really good about it. I'm surprised. You are? Yeah, I'm surprised. I thought I'd get a lot of uh, uh, stuff. <laughs> Who would you really want to meet? Pardon me? Who would you really want to meet? I want to meet, if I could, I want to meet Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson. That'd be cool. Well, I hope you do, and I bet they would really like to meet you. And they made such a big deal about having this Canadian kid that when they realize he has no talent other than humping things, they're like, what do we do? We can't fire him because that's embarrassing because we've talked so much about it. So they just basically put Ryan Gosling in the corner for most of his Mickey Mouse years because they don't have any idea what to do with him since oh. what he does cannot be done on television. That is amazing. <laughs> I'm going to say one other thing too. You didn't bring this up, but uh, Ryan Gosling was really nice to my mom. And, Aww. you know, uh, this is one of the, my favorite uh, moments of just a nice guy. I have friends who used to live next door to Ryan Gosling and they invite us over for Thanksgiving. My mom went to Ryan Gosling's house instead of my friend's house because they were so close. And uh, <laughs> Ryan Gosling opened the door and my mom was like, oh, I'm here for the, you know, Thanksgiving. He's like, oh, I think you're at the wrong house. And she's like, oh, really? He's like, oh, I know where you're going. Let me walk you over there and walk my mom to the next door house and had never spoken to my friends, but like knew that that's where they lived. And he would walk them over and like was so nice. And my mom, about a year later, was like, oh, that's a person who lives next door to you. Did not know it was Ryan Gosling the entire time. <laughs> How is she going to so, brag about it to her friends? I know. So is? now now she understands it was Ryan Gosling. But uh, yeah, she just said, I thought it was a nice, uh, a nice, um, you know, a nice guy who lived next door. So a, a good guy, a good guy who I feel like that humping energy, that nice guy energy, it's all there in this performance. Um, you know, I do think that Paul Newman would have been probably the better choice in a way. Like James Garner seems a little bit more... I'm a man's man. I eat pork, you know, that kind of a thing, you know, like, um, that's what, remember James Garner used to do those pork commercials. Oh, right. Yeah. I think we played a clip of that once. I don't remember. Yeah, we might've. Um, but you know, and I, I think that like Paul Newman has a little bit of that softness because Ryan Gosling in and this film does like. have it. Yeah, yeah. There's something really sweet. And I know that Paul Newman was up for it at, at one point. Um, yeah. Like I could see George Clooney almost becoming James Garner easier. Yes. Mm -hmm. Then Ryan Gosling becoming James Garner. And I could see, yeah, I think we're right. We just flipped the casting. 
But look, it could have been really, I mean, the list of coulda, shoulda, wouldas are really, they, they really are insane. And I don't know whether or not it's true or not, you know, cause, oh, I went in for an audition, but you know, if you, you have people like Jim Carrey and Colin Farrell and, you know, Brie Larson and, uh, Julie Benz, Britney Spears, Lacey Chabray, uh, Tim Allen, where they were going to be uh, Lon Hammond, you know, or for Adam Sandler as Finn, or Rob Schneider as Finn. John Cena was even up for Noah Calhoun, you know? So there's a lot of, like, a lot of interesting... I mean, again, it's like Vin Diesel saying he was going to be an Avatar. How close did they get? I don't know. Um, but this is, like, kind of touching one of the things I find so fascinating about this movie, which is it's got this pedigree, and yet you have all of these names of people who are interested in making this from Spielberg to John Cena. Like clearly this is a project that had heat that deserved to be made. That was taken seriously. You like this movie. That makes me so happy. I really like this movie. People who see this movie really love this movie. People are mad that this couple broke up in real life. A movie that has even been immortalized in the culture by being included in the rap song, Lazy Sunday. And Amy, also immortalized in Laker culture. Do you know this story? What? That Kobe Bryant searched everywhere, high and low, to get that blue dress, Rachel McAdams' dress, for his wife. And it was kind of like a mea culpa to say, I will be with you forever. And this is, you know, this is my, this is my, I'm sorry for what I did. Here we are. Let's go forward. You are my one and only. Whoa. I heard that after... He bought her like the most expensive diamond ring in the oh, world, yeah. but I didn't that know it was too. the diamond ring and the notebook dress. Oh, yes. my God. So there we go. Well, that said, despite all of this evidence then that the notebook is major in pop culture, this is a movie that is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, I mean, does that make sense? I think so. It does to me, but I'm curious what your theory is. I think my theory is, oh, gosh, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Um I think that there could always be this hatred of something that's kind of pure and simple. I think that whenever you see something that is quote unquote saccharine, we've gone back and forth about this numerous times about Capra-esque. What does Capra-esque mean? Um, And it doesn't mean what people often define it as, like just being like sweet and kind and good. You know, Capra obviously was a lot more edgy. I don't know if this movie is edgy. But I think this is a movie that could be judged on its poster, be judged on, oh, it's a chick movie, like that kind of energy. And that, to me, makes it prime. Whenever anything is lifted up in culture as being like, this is romance, this is attractive, this is love, this is that, it's so easy to pull it down. Um, I think it's the same way that Every other day, there's another article about someone saying that Marvel movies are the death of cinema. It's the same thing. It's just the other side of it. It's like, oh, yeah, and this is this sucks. It's like the article you said, the BuzzFeed article. So in my mind, I just think it's a general like reaction to popularity and romance. Yeah, I think that there is a knee-jerk response to a romantic film that if you don't think you like romantic films or if you're resistant to it at all, then even when it works on you, you're mad at it for working on you. 
And you want to yeah. kind of brag about resisting it. Like it's you're bragging about it like it's like the cold. Yeah, if it works, you call it manipulative. But that's such a bullshit answer because aren't we going to these things for manipulation? Aren't we going there to feel these things? And it's like, you're. it's not manipulating you. The poster is showing you what this movie is about. It's the kiss. That move. That moment is the movie. That sequence in the film. When they kiss and they finally have sex, like it really is, it is the, you know, you've, for lack of a better term, you've had blue balls all the way up for these two characters. You're like, let's get them together. And it's such a great, great moment. I love that moment. But I feel like this idea of like, oh, I didn't want to, I didn't want that. It's like, well, then don't go see movies. I don't I don't understand that idea of like feeling tricked. Look, if we want to talk about a Ryan Gosling movie that tricked people, let's talk about Drive. A movie that was uh the trailer was cut like Fast and Furious and it was anything but. Um that I get. Go bitch about that. But this, uh, come on. Yeah, I found the negative reviews of this movie fascinating because most of them don't say that the movie did anything poorly. They're just mad that the movie is there. Like Peter Travers opens his review by saying, I have the same allergic reaction to this open faucet of tear-jerking swill as I do to the 1996 novel that inspired it. But he has nothing actually bad to say about it, except just that he finds this genre tear-jerking swill. And, And the BBC hates this movie, gives it the worst pan, but they don't say anything about what doesn't work about it. And they seem to be complimenting it the whole way through. It's It's kind of like a strange nagging. They say, old-fashioned matinee pictures don't come much more sickly than The Notebook. It's a sweeping tale of love across the decades, starring James Garner and Gina Rollins as a pair of old wrinklies battling Alzheimer's. Those with a weak constitution for slushy mushness are advised to have their sick bags at the ready. Yet for all the schmaltz, it does the job it sets out to do, delivering a soft-focused, nostalgic weepy that'll have romantics blubbling and cynics hurling. As the youngsters, Gosling and Adams cook up an unlikely degree of sexual chemistry. It's enough to ensure you'll laugh, you'll cringe, heck, you might even cry. Just try not to hate yourself for it when the credits roll. So it's basically being like, it worked so much that I, a cynic, hated myself that it worked on me. We are cynical people. That's it. And and if you don't like something, it's so easy to be like, that's gross, that's disgusting. But you know what? You can't make any um you can't make any digs at the performances. I think that it's incredibly well directed. It looks pretty. Like when people are like, oh, there's too many swans or geese in those in that pond. It's like, and so what? Like it's a romantic movie. Like, what do you it wasn't, it's not a verite. It's you know, it's it's creating images. The opening of the film are images, they are hallmark cards and that's it basically gives you it rides you into it it's 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 the overture the movie sets it up but it's like star wars last week when we talked about that as well where it's like if you don't like it you can be like well i don't think that light speed actually works like that it's like why are we examining the technology of this movie when we should just be watching the adventure and the action of it like but this is what you do is you start to deconstruct something because you're uncomfortable with one element of it and then it can all fall apart. You're right. Actually, I was thinking about The Last Jedi because this is almost the opposite of it in the reaction. Terrible reviews, but an A audience score. And so I feel like The Notebook just slides right in to like this miniseries we've been kind of stumbling into about controversial films and the polarizing reaction to them. It's I would just have that, never have guessed. Like the, I'm too smart and cynical to fall in love. 
Aw, I'm sad for you then. And you know what? Maybe, Amy, the people who don't like this movie have never had true love. <gasps> I'd be curious to run the numbers on that. Bum, Let's bum. check it out. Well, this is a fascinating conversation. I didn't know if there'd be that much there to talk about, but I think there really is in looking at a movie that just is what it is. And and I say this often about action movies. I love a simple action movie. It's why Plane really works for me. You know, it's, it is to me like the basis of all great comedy, you know, a great comedy film. I don't like, if I'm looking at MacGruber or something like that, like just give me straight up jokes and just do your thing that you're going to do and do it well. And I feel like maybe the entire lesson learned here is it doesn't have to be complex. It just has to be done well and and let everybody else deal with it in any other way. They'll either love it or hate it. But the complexity that we add to these things, would it make this movie better or worse? You know, then I think this is a good way to open the door for the next movie I kind of want to cover, which is a movie that also tries to bring some reality, let's say, to a world that is very glossy and perhaps could be done very fakely. In keeping with the fact that there is now a third and final conclusive Magic Mike film directed by Steven Soderbergh, I think we should do the first Magic Mike film directed by Steven Soderbergh in his view of what it's like to be a male exotic dancer. Oh my God, another movie I haven't seen. I love it. All right. Well, what? another. Yeah. Oh my not seen God. This movie Where either. were you all these years? I don't know. All right. Take a listen to the trailer. Good evening. Good you live evening. here? Yeah. Yeah? What's your name? Kim. Kim, can you move back for me, please? We keep getting complaints of noise and underage drinking. Everybody sit down. We're going to be here for a while. You don't have anything sharp on you that I can stick myself with, do you? No. Good. Because I do. The businesses that I manage, they deal exclusively in cash. Wow. Busy guy. <laughs> we welcome the stage, the one, the only... Magic Mike. You are the husband that they never had. You are that dreamboat guy that never came along. That's a cool table. But you made that? Hmm? You should sell these things. That's actually the idea. My sister? Mike. Uh, oh, nice thank one. You. Mike. So how do you know my brother? I'm an entrepreneur. I uh, manage a few businesses. Trying to hit on my sister. Okay. Uh, good talk. All right. You can get Magic Mike wherever you get your streaming films. Also check out Canopy and Hoopla, which are both uh, services provided by your local public library. Uh, and they're free there. Also, if you want to play cards, you can play with an unspooled deck. Just go to podswag.com. Check out our show and you can get a deck designed by the amazing Kim Troxell. Uh, all of her famous work from every poster that we've done in the early episodes of this series are reflected on cards. I think you will love them. Uh, go to podswag.com. We'll I got a video of people gambling and it made me really happy. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can 
talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the Unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen tests on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.